Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, October 11th, 2021, and we're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Yero, the other co-host. We'd like to extend a really warm welcome to our guest, Cyrus Harris. We're going to be talking about whitefish and some of the ways that folks fish for them here in northwestern Alaska. So welcome. Good morning. My name is Cyrus Harris. I live here in Kotzebue, Alaska. Although I was raised over in Sisolik, Sisolik, which is roughly about 12 miles across the bay from Kotzebue, most people call it a fish camp, summer camp. To me, it's my homestead, a place where I was raised. And the harvest of whitefish just happens in my backyard. It used to be a, either a boat ride or a dog team ride or just by any means getting there to do the fishing, camping, and harvesting. Today's technology, we do, we do have four-wheelers and you know other means of getting there. What time of year are you going to fish camp to fish for whitefish? You know, we target about this time of the year, late uh, later part of September when the weather starts cooling off. But that doesn't hold us off from getting some fresh fish throughout the later part of July, August on just a limited amount with a gill net. But the Inupiaq had uh, their own homemade fish nets and so forth. It's an ancient old fish trap that's just made out of the uh, environment itself. And the only modern day tool we use today is a a shovel. Okay. How is it set up? What does the fish trap look like and how does it work? Well, first, the environment that I'm going to be talking about, it's along the coast uh, toward Cape Cruisenstern. And the Cape Cruisenstern's got a large lagoon back there and right up in the area toward the beach, toward the coast, a place named Anigak. There's an area to where the lagoon opens and flushes out during the springtime. Everything out of the lagoons flushes out and then it naturally closes up with the west winds, the northwest winds, the currents and the waves kind of like closes the opening that goes to the ocean. Is that due to the movement of gravel and waves kind of moving gravel across the opening of these lagoons? Yeah, the, the winds and the waves, they are uh, just constantly moving day on a daily basis and then gradually closes the, the opening back up to where we're able to cross by four-wheelers or you know, just by any means of getting across, getting to and from. And so when that happens, we do have a lot of landlocked whitefish in those large lagoons. And what attracts some to come back down to the coast is when we have low tides on the oceans. So when they do come down during those times is when we are able to harvest some whitefish throughout the early parts of the year in August. And September, maybe when it's still a little bit warm, we're still just getting a controlled, a small amount. We do make a karikisak about this time of the year, which is an ancient old fish trap. It's a false opening. All you need is about an inch of water to create that false opening. So they're attracted to those currents that's heading out to the ocean, except it's got a dead end on it. And it's it's like a long trench, roughly about 20 feet. Some can be shorter to 10 to 12 feet, but the longer one kind of works better. This is an interesting method of collecting fish that I've never heard of before, but I want to make sure I'm understanding it right. So it sounds to me like, so you have these sort of lagoons that are created seasonally, 
and they're full of these whitefish and you're kind of going up and you're breaching the the wall of the lagoon a little bit to allow some of that water to flow out over a more shallow surface and then the fish notice that current kind of go over the spillway of the wall and then the water kind of just goes away and they're there for you to collect is that correct well let's put it this way toward the opening of the paw we create a, a trench that's going to be about a foot and a half to two feet wide and it's going to be a long trench it's going to be level with the water on the lagoon side but we don't want any much more water flowing that's going to be any more than a, like an inch deep just as long as the water is flowing and toward the end we have a big basin or a bowl rather that where the water collects and then drains into the uh, gravel toward the ocean so the ocean is still about 30 feet beyond the big beach and it takes a while for the fish to get the idea that there is a current heading in that direction of course some of them do turn back but they just continue to keep going back and forth and then once a first group do go a bunch right behind them just follow along and then once it gets full we just close the opening whatever water is in there drains out and it's your 20 foot long trench along with a bowl at the end that's just completely full of white fish so we monitor and watch that one and close it when it's full and then get our harvest. So all the fish are fresh, they're alive. Like I mentioned earlier, the only uh, modern day tool we use for that fish trap is a shovel. So we're able to store those up into gunny sacks. We do scale the white fish if we're going to be cooking them whole. But when we get a large amount during the springtime, when it cools off enough, we do gunny sack them, store them in that manner and then let the colder weather kind of like age and uh, take care of them. And it's a delicacy that we've also used in a form in that way. But that's not counting out the other fish that we're scaling to cook and bake or even to make dried fish or half dried fish. So there's a lot of good uses for that fish. It's a fish that got its own distinctive taste and it's similar to the she fish. The she fish is the as in the whitefish family, except it's a larger version, what I see the difference on both the whitefish and the whitefish that's near the ocean or the coastal communities, they are a freshwater fish, although they do feed off the salt water where the tides come in and out. And then it creates this great taste to the fish, just a delicacy compared to a fish that would stay in the freshwater year round or its entire life. There's a difference in, in, in texture and taste. They sound amazing. That sounds good. I'm curious, how big are these lagoons? What are the dimensions like on them, that both depth and then sort of surface area? Well, the lagoons, you know, if you Google it, you know, Anigak and the Cape Cruising Stern Lagoon, it's a very large lagoon. The lakes can be fairly deep. And of course, we have channel, river channels that goes up the first on the right side one is called Tukrup, and it's a freshwater creek that goes to the nearest mountains there. And on, but the one that turns off to the left, it connects over toward the great big lagoon right below Cape Kusenstern Mountain. So, and of course, all the tributaries just kind of like collect water into that area. So it's a large lagoon, a lot of great feeding ground for the fish during the time they're there. And this white fishing been happening there from time immemorial. Yeah. 
it's it's a pretty amazing place because it does seem like there's a ton of water and it's very diverse, right? I mean, you've got lagoons, you have all kinds of lakes and river channels. Can you describe just the landscape for folks that aren't familiar with this area? Just kind of what does it look like? Yeah, from Sisolik, we're along the coast. Our beach runs all the way from Sisolik all the way up toward Carolina and beyond. So we are along the coast. So in it's all gravel coast, gravel beach. And of course, you know, we have some uh, bluffs that's along the way, considering that the water is not really high to where it's hitting the bluffs, we're able to cross. But water is medium or on a low point, then, you know, we can cross to and from. What are the different species that go- are going into these lagoons? There's three species of sheepfish, the kalupak, well, the broad whitefish, I believe they are, they are mm-hmm. and the cisco. And I can't quite remember what the other name was. And I got it up here on the wall here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you guys saw this picture before or this poster? Yeah, so we have a poster showing a lot of different types of fish. It looks like some flounder, um, some marine mammals. Yeah, it's just so this is the whole ecosystem of the Katsubi Sound that we did studies on. So we have all the way up to the beluga whale, all the way down to the isopods, or what you call that, you know, the um, diatoms. But you've asked what kind of fish we got here. We got the humpback whitefish, the tipuk is the bearing cisco, and the least ciscos. You know, we, these are the three most common ones we got in the lagoons over there. What are the Anupiac names for those three fish? This Amaktuk, Tipuk, and Akalusak. They're they're all whitefish. These are the three common ones that we do have down there. But every so often, we're going to run into broad whitefish. These broad whitefish are more up along the Notak and the Kobuk rivers. Do you have a favorite species to eat out of those? You know, it all depends on what I'm going to have it for. You know, if I'm going to have a snack right there while they're still wiggling and still alive, (laughs) got that? I'm going to crack this one open that's full of eggs, and that's going to be my breakfast right there. For those of you listening, Cyrus is pointing at least Cisco on a really cool poster he's got that shows um, the fish of Katsabue Sound, it looks like. And then, um, of course, these other fish, when we're going to have them fresh, of course, we scale them because the skin is edible. The skin has got a great source of vitamin. So we scale those and get them cleaned out. And other than opening them up, we just put them in the oven as they are because you're still cooking the eggs in there and the liver. And I'm not too sure what the stomach part is called, but in a bird, it's called a gizzard. That's another delicacy in there. Have you seen any changes over the years that you've been going to fish camp, like changes in the weather, changes in the conditions at sea or the ice? There's some great significant differences as far as climate change go. We all see it. We all hear it. You know, just take, for example, this year, this whole summer, this is the most rain I've ever saw in my entire lifetime. And of course, along with that, we've had very high waters very high waters up on the Notak, very high waters up on the Kobuk, which is very unusual. Is it becoming the new norm? You know, that's a good question. I'm unable to do any fishing this fall. So the lagoons really did flood it back there to the point to where the pressure did open it back up just about a week ago. Normally, it should have stayed closed for us to successfully continue to harvest fish and then throughout the winter. 
for fresh fish. After it freezes up, we would set under ice nets and continue fishing up in, for the month of October into November. And so whatever all fish was up there, stored landlocked, escaped out to the ocean. And so I have to find other means of catching them where they may be in other lagoons. So you're saying that the ice gets covered up as early as October then? Well, you know, it used to be in October. Now it's getting later. Yeah, and that must be kind of changing, like you said, you having to go after different fishing opportunities and maybe not having some of those traditional dishes that you might have had in the past. Exactly. Those traditional fishes, we got to monitor a little bit better because when we first started experiencing these changes, you know, we got some too soon to the point to where, you know, there was a lot of spoilage. Because just as soon as the weather starts, we just follow along with the weather and it's cooling off. You know, it's time to do it, right? But of course, a week later, you get 60 degree weather for four or five days and late September, you know, it's crazy. I've been hearing a little bit about some of that mismatch in Alaska and other areas too, where you have things maybe arriving earlier or later and it just, yeah, it seems to affect a lot of different things. Yeah, we're definitely getting a later freezing trend. And we're get, definitely getting an earlier spring thaw. I know you mentioned changes and, you know, just kind of questions about the biology. Are there any pressing questions that you guys are hoping to understand in the future about whitefish and change with the environment? Well, you know, just by as far as the changes go, and we've spoken a little bit about the earlier breakups and the later freeze-ups, we still get our fish. And it all depends on the opening and closing of Anigak. So near Anigak is another little lake called Akulak, and they both produce. There was this one year where Anigak opened up, but Akulak stayed closed. So we were able to at least harvest from Akulak, and Anigak was out of the question. But this year, this spring, Akulak didn't open up. So the fish didn't come in like they would normally and, and then get landlocked were able to harvest. So I could imagine with it staying closed throughout the whole summer, it's just pretty much it's like a dead water, you know. It really depends on what nature nature's got to offer. So if you know when I'm gonna be doing some white fishing, fall-time white fishing, I'm already studying the environment in June. So the weather in June and the environment is gonna give me an idea on what's coming up for the fall harvest at Anigak. If things don't go properly like uh, expected, then it's a slim chance I'm going to be getting whitefish. Or it might be a, if things just go right, you know, there's going to be abundance of whitefish. Can you describe a little bit of a specific example of what you're looking for? Like when you're making observations in June for what's going to happen later in the year, what, what are you actually analyzing? You know, in the month of June is when it opens up during the spring break, during the spring thaw, the timing. When it does open up from the lagoons to the ocean, it runs really heavy. It just kind of like flushes out the whole lagoons, whatever is in there. And then um, during that time it's open, we have other whitefish that's running to and from from other areas that do come into the lagoons during the time it's open. And of course, when it closed, they do get landlocked. So I'm, I'm looking for the time of the opening and the time of the closure. If the time of the closure, you know, extended for a long period of time, there's a slim chance that I'm going to be getting some landlocked whitefish back there. Or if it opened in August or early September, you know, then the white fishing there is just out of the option. 
Cyrus, I saw online that you run the, is it Manilik? Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, Manilik. You run the hunter support program. Could you describe that a little bit? Is that where you're providing some food to elders in the area? Yes. You know, traditional foods has been with us from time immemorial. And that's the reason that we're here today. It is a custom to be taking care of our elders, whether, you know, it's government provided or not. But, you know, this is just the way how we grew up. So growing up over in Sisolik, back in the day, in the later 70s, 80s, up until maybe the earlier 90s, we used to have a lot of elders from this area that that just loves to go spend time over there during the spring, coming in April, throughout the summer, up until late fall, you know, until it started getting too cold, coming wintertime. But they chose to be over there because they know that's where the food that they crave is there. And then you have able-bodied hunters and fisher that's going to and from and just deliver that food. So it's a custom that we do, not just here, but throughout the Inupiaq nation, let's put it that way. Anyway, yeah, this hunter support program, I got it started back in 1993 with Manila. It started out as a federal funded program. The federal funded program is a Title VI program, the nutritious program for the elderly that was made possible by the Older Americans Act. And then down in the lower 48, they operate a whole lot differently than how we would with those funds. They have meals on wheels. They gather their elders at cafeterias, you know, and feed them in that manner. But we couldn't utilize those funds to go to the market and buy the Western diet for our our elders who were not accustomed to that food. With an agreement between Manilak and the feds at the time, we had it switched over to hunter support, which is gasoline, motor oil, and ammunition for able-bodied hunters and fishermen to go out and harvest for the elders that's in need of traditional foods. That's a really cool program. Times has changed. Back in 95, they did have a a federal shutdown for a period of time that lasted for about six months, if I can remember right. I knew I was out of a job for six months because this program didn't survive that. But by then, after two years of operating here, the uh, support from our region was already there. So Manila protested the decision from the feds which reached the late Senator Ted Stevens' table at the state level. And so he said, well, how about if we get this chunk of money from the state and you operate the program the same way you've been operating? I said, wow. So I'm back to work. Of course, the governor's change, time change. And again, this program didn't survive that for not much more than two years after that. And there was even more support within this community after four or five years of operating that since then, the Manilak Board of Directors has been supporting and running this program under Manilak's general fund. And it's not a cheap operation, let's put it that way. Are the elders mostly in Kotzebue or what's the, I guess, range of coverage? I work with 12 villages here within the Manilak service area, and that's all the way from Point Hope to Buckland. So the, within the whole Manilak service area. So I work with the tribal governments for them to operate the program within their own community to disperse these funds to able-bodied hunters, fishermen that's willing to go out and harvest for their particular elders. And the same thing here in Kotzebue, I work with the native village of Kotzebue for them to distribute for our community elders here as far as attracting hunters, fishermen that, you know, would like to go out. 
Very good, Cyrus. This was great talking with you today. Um, yeah, this is, it sounds like a really neat place to catch whitefish and we were very happy to have you with us today. So thank you. Thank you, Cyrus. So we hope everybody gets out and enjoys all the fish, especially the whitefish. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore. Production management by Gabriella Montaguin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.